Blog Talk Radio. that tackles some pretty difficult topics, and uh, one of those topics today is one that I'm really looking forward to exploring with our guest. Judith Spitzer is here with us. She's an award-winning journalist, and she's going to be talking with us about when the police are the perpetrators of domestic violence. Judith, welcome. Thank you. Um, I have been a journalist for about 30 years. I've uh, written a multitude of stories on domestic violence. Um, as well as several stories on police-perpetrated domestic violence. Um. Thank you, Judith. Two of her recent stories, and you know what? I'm going to give out our phone number really quick because we're working under rather adverse conditions today. (laughs) We are sharing a telephone, and we're in a studio that has no door on it, so you may be getting some really bizarre audio, but I think the content will be worth it if it's a bit of a struggle for you to listen. If you'd like to call in, I'm not operating the chat room today, but I am operating the phone line, so if you'd like to call in with a question or a comment, 646-378-378. 0430. That's 646-378-0430. Judith, tell me why, please, there is a difference between officer-perpetrated domestic violence and just domestic violence perpetrated by anybody. Why are we looking at this as a separate topic? The number one reason we're looking at it as a separate topic is because of course, police officers have access to lethal weapons. The other part of it is a police officer knows how to um, appropriate power and control. Police officers many times are trained in how not to show um, on someone's body violence that's been perpetrated against them. The other reason is survivors are um, alone in that they don't have anybody to call. Who are they going to call? Uh, police officers who are friends with their spouse or um, boyfriend. Um, so they're a very unique population as survivors. I thought that that was an issue we talked about 10 or 15 years ago. I thought it had all been taken care of, but in fact it hasn't. I was looking at one of your articles, um, the police dragging heels on officers' domestic violence, and that came out in Women's E-News just um, in December December of 2010, but the issue hasn't changed much, has it? Tell us, please, about this article. Why, Why were the police dragging the heels? Tell us about the situation, and then tell us why you wrote the article. I wrote the article because I've been looking at this issue for 20 years now as a a journalist. Um, There are three studies that have been done on the uh, incidence of of police violence against their loved ones. Um, And they found that it's two to four times more common among police families compared with 10% of families in the general population. So theoretically at even 10%, that means if there are 500 it means there are if there are 500 police officers in the US, there are at least 50,000 domestic violence offenders in police ranks. 
and few uh, few police departments in the country have policies and programs to address the problem, according to the National Center for Women and Policing. Um, citing a 1994 nationwide survey, they say almost half of the police departments surveyed had no specific policy for dealing with officer-involved uh, domestic violence. So what agencies do is typically handle such cases informally, often without an official report, investigation, or even a check of the victim's safety, according to the Center's Police Family Violence Fact Sheet. So it sounds like the it sounds like with the reasons that you identified, we should have some special procedures and policies in place to deal with uh, situations when police officers are the perpetrators. But in fact, it sounds like very few police departments actually have those policies. Now, I'm from Washington State, and there's been a lot of talk about um, certain police departments and how they're handling these situations. We, of course, had a very, very terrible situation many years ago where a police officer actually met his wife when she was trying to leave in a parking lot. Her children, were, Their children were in the car, and he shot her, and, and uh, it was a, the crystal brain situation. And that spurred a lot of activity, a lot of action, a lot of talk about police-perpetrated domestic violence. But I'm not aware that that's actually still in the news. I'm not aware of what special policies were in place. What kind of special policies could be enacted? What are we talking about, Judith? Um, after the pr- crystal brain case, um her father um, became an activist and got a law passed that every police department in Washington State is required to have a policy, interdepartmental policy, on police and domestic violence. Um, One of the key uh, people that I interviewed in a couple of my stories is uh, Dave Thomas, who is a retired Montgomery County, Maryland police officer. He is now an instructor with John Hopkins University Public Safety, and he trains police departments to respond to officer-involved domestic violence. Um, he collaborated with the International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, in 19, or I'm sorry, 2003-2004, and produced a model policy for agencies to follow. But you're right. Uh, there are very few agencies outside of Washington State who make that a priority in their police department. And Thomas says there are key principles of any program on uh, officer-involved domestic violence. One of them is the immediate involvement of a higher-ranking officer so a junior officer isn't put in the position of arresting a superior in a case of domestic violence. Thomas says agencies should also provide an avenue for family members to reach out to the department, and they recommend that it be on a department's website. When reports do come in, he says agencies must act fast so there's no lag time between the time of the report and when something is done. Uh, Thomas told me if an abuser is in law enforcement, he is a batterer with a Ph.D. in power and control, that that victim is in double jeopardy. And he says the lack of a program also puts the police department um, in fear of legal liability for what the officer is doing. So it's true. I know that police departments have been held liable uh, for failure to protect a victim, whether it's a spouse of a police officer or not. So I imagine it's even worse 
if you are a, a victim of a police officer as far as the liability is concerned for the department. Um, what kinds of things do these policies do? I mean, does it I, – I know we've done a number of shows on sports figures and the problems with sports figures and domestic violence, and there are actually – or there is actually some movement in the uh, some of the professional football teams, et cetera, to uh, have classes with wives and uh, girlfriends and to uh, work with them on what they can do and who they can come to and getting them comfortable with the idea that it's okay to report this um, – uh, intimate partners' behavior. Are they doing that with police? Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about policies, the, what, the, the, what the victims can do to feel comfortable going ahead and reporting, or are we just talking about ways to handle paperwork? We're talking about both. Um, the I, the um, IACP, the uh, Police Chiefs Association, has a model policy that describes specific protocols they should adopt to safely handle these cases. Um, In Washington State, where it's required, um, there are also limits of the programs and the policies from that. Um, It is the only state that requires law enforcement agencies to have an internal policy on OIDV. Um, And we talked about the case that that the reform came from in uh, 2003. A uh, more recent case was the suicide killing rampage by an Oregon sheriff's officer um, in February 2010, in which uh, there were lots of early warning signs um, of this case that happened in 2009. And um, this officer went to a Sergeant County Sheriff, Clackamas County Sheriff's Officer, I'm sorry, we're working out of an office here, and it's so loud in in the middle of the hotel, and we're sharing a phone, so I apologize for my uh, lack of flow here. In this uh, 2009 case, Clackamas County Sheriff Sergeant Jeffrey Gron killed his wife, Charlotte, two of her friends, and then himself at a bar in Gresham, Oregon. Um... For weeks after the shooting, the sheriff's office at Clackamas County denied there were warnings of domestic violence in Jeffrey Grant's personal life prior to the shootings. And uh, after pressure from local, local media, however, it made public doc- it made public documents that since have been widely reported on, showing allegations of domestic abuse just ten months before the shooting. In April of 2009, the sheriff's office was investigating possible officer-related domestic violence in that case after a tip from someone, a friend of the family, and a probation officer married to an Oregon State Patrol officer. This person said she feared receiving a phone call one day if something wasn't done, with Jeff Gron being reported uh, suicidal. So this case also became very you know notorious in on the west coast but our east coast police departments uh, equally concerned i mean it seems to me like this is not just you know something that happens in the pacific northwest it must happen all over the place but you said judith that washington state is the only state that's actually come up with a specific policy for dealing with officer involved domestic violence or as you called it oidv um 
what, why do you think there's such a holdup? Do you, do you think that it's a you know, social um, environment that's causing police departments? Do you think they're just protecting themselves from thinking that if they don't deal with it, people won't talk about it? What do you think is the holdup? Um, and what could we do about it if we are in a state that doesn't have this kind of policy and we think it's important? Well, a lot of it is based on the um, police culture itself. Um, a lot of police officers are drawn to this profession because um, they want power and control. Those are also, as we know, the same um, um, characteristics of batters, that the ultimate uh, goal here is power and control. Um, and law enforcement's work is central to their sense of identity. So if they're faced with losing a job and they're charged with domestic violence and it sticks, their career is over. The victim knows that and it puts them in incredible danger, but it also uh, speaks to the fact that um, there's a greater potential for these cases to be swept under the rug. So we're dealing with situations where police officers oftentimes will be drawn to the profession because they like the idea of power and control, and by that I do not mean to you know, smear and besmirch every police officer. Uh, we're talking about a, a small percentage of people, just um, definitely. We don't want to just, you know, oh, bad police officers. But it is an issue, and as uh, Judith mentioned before, these people also happen to have access to weapons, um, and that always makes the domestic abuser that much more dangerous. They're also people who have a really strong brotherhood, a fraternity of uh, other officers who are willing to protect them and shield them from repercussions from their behaviors. Um, we're dealing with the idea of having some sort of paper trail, and sometimes that paper trail doesn't get it just doesn't get created when you're dealing with a police department and the perpetrator works for that police department. Sometimes things just kind of, as Judith said, get swept under the rug. Judith, I want to step back from some of this uh, talk about specific cases, specific policies. Could you tell us just briefly why you care about this? What, what about this created uh, your interest and what drives you to continue to research and uh, be interested in these kinds of stories? When I was um, in college in Denver, Colorado, I was um, uh, going through the journalism program and working at the Rocky Mountain News. And at that time, um, there were two cases that piqued my interest in this. One of them was um, my attorney was killed in an office, in a law office by her batterer the same year that I was in school about 2004. The other case that happened was um, a case where a an attorney was um, supporting a woman in court, and it was before the um, before police or before people got um, were searched before they went into the courthouse. And this woman in court, supporting her client, was shot several times by a um, county sheriff who had brought his service revolver into the courtroom and shot the attorney. Um, now, of course, they don't allow people to have weapons in the courtroom, 
But I was stunned that this happened, and that's what um, motivated me to start looking into um, officer-involved domestic violence. Thank you, Judith. We have, as I mentioned, we're kind of doing this under some uh, pretty tough circumstances. We have no door on the studio, and we're sharing a telephone, and so it's coming across kind of choppy, but the information is so crucial, and it's so important. I'm hoping that that's not interfering. And we just have a delightful guest that just walked in, thank goodness, uh, Rita Henley-Jensen, editor and founder of Women's E-News. And one of the articles that we were talking about that Judith wrote appeared in Women's E-News. Rita, we're talking about some of Judith's articles and her interest in police-perpetrated domestic violence. Why does Women's E-News print stories like that? Um, Because nobody, a simple answer is nobody else will. And uh, Judith's stories are so excellent. We were just in a session and somebody uh, was wondering, you know, well, where are the records of the police and, you know, can't you go through the court records and find it? And I'm like, I just felt that they were so naive. (laughs) And (laughs) one of my uh, big stories I I did, uh, I was once a daily newspaper reporter myself. One of the big stories I did, I was in the newsroom on Christmas Eve because I was a newbie, and we got a call from a, a, a bunch of people who said, the chief of detectives' wife just shot herself, and we don't believe it's suicide. And we're like, oh, well, that's, you know, they're crazy. But as it turned out, we contacted the woman's divorce attorney, and the documentation for the divorce, which was public in New Jersey, was incredible. And at one point, the chief of detectives for this town in New Jersey had told his wife to kneel down and say her prayers, and he called her, you guinea bitch, and he fired. But at the last minute, he lifted the gun so that it went into the paneling. So we wrote the stories, and the woman, now dead woman's attorney sued in civil court for wrongful death, knowing that the local police department were, would always call it a suicide, and and asked for an autopsy, and then the local uh, prosecutor did an autopsy, and it was like, oh, it was suicide, and then uh, somehow through political pressure, they did a third autopsy, and the third one said, oh, you can't tell. And this is crazy because the gunshot entered behind her ear, and that's not how people kill themselves. It's a little awkward. Um, (laughs) And eventually, this uh, chief of detectives was indicted, and he shot himself the night before his arraignment. So it's like everybody tried their best to cover it up. And it is a very difficult story to cover, and they are supposed to surrender their arms. I don't think Judith has a better idea of how often that happens. I would say very rarely. Usually you cover up for your brethren, the blue code, right? Okay. I'm back to you, Heather. Thank you, Rita. How long ago was that? It was in 70... 
97. In 97. And Judith, would you say that that situation has not changed dramatically? If anything, the situation has gotten worse, and we see more and more cases of it, especially with um, related to the aggressive police and excessive force cases. So we've got, again, we're, we've got police officers who not only have access to weapons, who may have been uh, uh, attracted to the idea of power and control, uh, and that's what might be one of the reasons why they chose that particular profession. But then we have not only a police department, the Brotherhood, that's willing to um, cover up for them or save them or protect them, even if they're not willing to cover up. And then we've also, I've got from Rita's story, we've probably got a whole infrastructure that is invested in protecting the police department. You've got a coroner, you've got the investigators, you've got the legal department. You know, nobody wants to step on those toes of the people that they have to work with. Um, and, And also, you know, less nefariously, we're all more empathetic to the people that we know. So if we work with somebody and we know them, we're more likely to cut them some slack or say, well, we understand why they did this or we're, they, they need help or they don't need prosecution. I mean, the problem with this whole scenario is is that the, those people that they work with are people who are charged with public safety. So if you've got prosecutors and legal departments and city officials who are all willing to cut some slack to somebody, then somebody's not getting justice. And it sounds to me that from what Judith and uh, Rita are saying, that situation hasn't changed dramatically. Judith, in Washington State, we're fortunate because we had that very notorious case where we did uh, have changes. Are there any other states that are making any efforts to come up with policies or are individual police departments coming up with some policies to try to address this? Um, There are no specifics that I know about except um, the case of Dottie Davis in Indianapolis. Um, She was an assistant police chief, I believe, and she got some local um, police policy passed in her department. There's also... um, Another woman named Diane Wettendorf, who's in California, who's done a lot of activist work and and works with police agencies to train officers. Um, That used to be the big problem with domestic violence is that police officers were not trained, so when they went to the door of um, a potential survivor, they um, didn't know that the woman might be acting um, scared and was... um, afraid to tell the officers because she was afraid of getting beat after the officer left. So um, that has improved a little bit. There's a lot more um, education on the part of police departments. Sorry about that. There's a cart rolling down the aisle. Um, But there, like I said, are limits to policy, too. Um, the uh, Dave Thomas, the uh, John Hopkins o- previous officer, told me that um, once an organization has been notified about an officer committing domestic violence, they can be held legally liable for what happens next. And he says agencies have been losing in court because they don't do something reasonable to change what was happening. One example um, is a lawsuit brought by the father of a woman slain by her husband, 
Crystal Bram, the case from nine, or 2003. So it looks like not many states are taking the lead that Washington State has been forced to take um, based on that lawsuit that Judith was talking about. Rita, are you aware of any states or any particular organizations or anything that's really making a concerted effort to help with police officer-involved domestic violence? Are you? Does anything come to mind for you? No. Uh, not No. And... You know, the public attention currently is on police officers shooting black men in the back. And one of the things that women's rights activists know, that what they do publicly, there will be a reflection at home. Um, I think this is, there was a law that was passed that they had to give up their weapons if they were charged. But that just becomes a barrier to, wait a minute, I just remembered the case you were talking about. That becomes a barrier for the woman to report because she just raised, they just raised the stakes. And so the intimidation factor and and the buddy factor of not willing to report um, just grew. So it's, it's a wise law but the implementation doesn't take into account the blue code. But you're talking about the woman who was battered by her husband, a police officer, in New York City, and it was the beatings were so brutal, and all of that became testimony in the murder trial, and she got 25 years to life. Um, she shot him as he was shaving um, and used her own, uh, his own pistol against him. And so the jury, she had walked upstairs, he had threatened her with his gun, and she walked upstairs and got his another gun and came downstairs and shot him, fearful for her, fearful for her life. She was sure that this time he really was going to kill her. He had threatened before. And yet the jury um, and the criminal justice system said, no, oh, no, it was premeditated murder because she had walked up the stairs to get the gun and came down. There's, that's my most recent memory of what happened to her is that her children put up their homes for her to be bailed out while she's appealing. And the children testified, they were grown, testified against their father. So they were, they confirmed the abuse that she was experiencing. Well, that happens kind of typically. I think that women do not usually kill during the heat of the battle because they usually don't have a weapon available. And so they will wait. I mean, remember the old the burning bed, you know, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So that's very typical of domestic violence victims, that they are not, in a position to kill when they are actually being attacked. They have to wait until the attack is over and he goes off to take a shave and then they can get their hands on a weapon and then they can retaliate. But that works against them in court because then that isn't perceived as 
you know, retaliation to save their life. It's per- perceived as premeditated. They had to think about getting the weapon, and they had to think about walking over to the bedroom to get him. Um, do either of you know, and I, this may not be a question that you know, but do either of you know whether or not a police officer's victims are more likely to be prosecuted if they retaliate or if they... Um, it's an interesting question. If you don't know, I mean, I, I understand that's kind of... You mean if they complain? Um, no, if they actually retaliate. If they actually... They're um, usually dead. They're, they're usually dead, Judith says, so yeah. Um, but I'm I'm wondering if, you know, there's more public outrage or prosecutorial outrage if a, a female, you know, a victim of a police officer actually takes action on her own behalf. I'm wondering... Part of the problem here, and was a problem 30 years ago with DV statistics in general, is that there are no records um, of any of this except for when people talk about what happened. Families, et cetera, et cetera, come out and talk about this, or somebody like Hop- uh, Thomas at Hopkins um, comes out and talk about it. He says that um, 3 to 6% of agencies across the country have any policy on domestic violence. And that was a statistic I used in 2010, but I'm pretty certain that it hasn't changed a whole lot since then. Um, what, this case in Oregon that I talked about, one of, the, um, or one of the things I wanted to touch on was that most of the cases rarely even get to the prosecutor. That happened in the Oregon case. Um, uh, who's ever in charge will sweep it under the rug, uh, give somebody, uh, you know, two days off without pay, whatever. Um, but it isn't commensurate with the crime. And that's what um, Thomas says. These men are committing crimes, and it's 99% men, but these men are committing crimes. Why aren't they being prosecuted? In the um, Grand case in Oregon, the prosecutor wasn't even part of the decision to for what they did for this guy. They knew a year in advance that he was having problems, um, was on depression medication, was suicidal. Um, they had all these, and they they investigated the case. And Portland Police Department, um, this happened in Gresham, and the Portland Police Department took over the investigation. And I had... Um, one of the investigators talked to me and told me that Gron uh, was rated sky high on what they call a lethality assessment. And still, he took that 10 months before he shot all these people, and still they did nothing to protect the wife. who uh, they, The couple had children at home as well. Um, and when they called her in to interview her about this, um, I was told that she pleaded the fifth. Please, um, pleading the fifth is a pretty good indication that there's something going on here. Um, so, you know, it's those kind of problems that um, these women are up against, and I feel so much empathy for them because who are they going to call? A police officer's uh, buddies at the station and report that he's committing domestic violence against her? They're pretty isolated when it comes to um, getting help from somebody. The other thing is that the police culture is pretty traditional in nature, which means that um, they socialize with one another, which adds another layer of 
it's not that these people socialize and tell each other this is going on, and they don't socialize as much outside the family. So um, it's it's really a problem. So police families are kind of like military families in that they hang out e- with each other. They have similar uh, lifestyles. They have similar concerns, and so they tend to to hang out together and, and uh, kind of form insulated community groups. And so what Judith is saying, I think, Judith, is that you know when you combine that kind of insulation, it's not like you can go to somebody who's totally outside of that whole police um, picture, that whole police career, and say this is what's happening. You're dealing with – you're pretty much – much on as the police wife the whole time. I think um, that you're you're dealing with your family and dealing with this the situation. Again, going back to the whole sports analogy that we've been going through, I know a lot of sports uh, teams and sports. You know, the NFL, for example, supposedly is making a concerted effort to educate spouses and girlfriends uh, that they have a right to come, whereas they used to supposedly tell them, no, you don't want to talk about this. You just keep it to yourself if something like this happens or just come to one of us and we'll help you with this. Now I understand, or I mean, at least I'm being told, that the some of these athletic teams and, and associations are making a concerted effort to get out there and tell the uh, potential victims that it is okay to come to us and we'll help you. Oh, Rita's going to add something to this. I, I, I I added my codicil. I'm being told that this is what they're doing. (laughs) Well, we don't know what they actually are doing. And, of course, there was a huge dispute because when they set up a commission, they had no African-American women on their advisory council. And the African-American women were like, what? They wouldn't even agree to meet with the African-American women. I think, secondly... um, it took a video in an elevator of an NFL player shocking his girlfriend, and he's back on the team, to even begin the national discussion. And for them, the NFL, knocking, by the way, in the elevator, he knocked her unconscious. Um, yes, she stayed with him. We're pretty confident. He said, I'm so sorry, that will never happen again. Um Somebody pointed out to me that a lot of athletes are on steroids, which can be um, a precipitating factor in any kind of violence. Um, But, yes, he's back on the team. But it took a video, just like it's taking a video of black men being shot in the back. And we've known that black men have been shot in the back for years, and we've known Athletes have been brutalizing their families for years, and it took one video to really, for the conversation to take off and be at least raise some of the issues. So it sounds like what we need is we need some sort of video uh, of police officers who are abusing their wives, and I can only imagine how 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 unlikely that is because, of course, the nature of domestic violence is that it's private, you know, the, hence the domestic. Yeah. And uh, domestic violence in general, you know, 30 years ago was considered 
it's just in behind closed doors and you keep it quiet. So um, just because we've made some progress in general in getting domestic violence out from behind the closed, closed curtains, it sounds like it needs special effort to bring it out and bring the awareness about the police perpetrators of domestic violence. So we've been talking about this. Rita, I did want to ask you a real quick question about do you see this? And, and when we're talking about police, I think we're really talking about people who are in authority, who have access to weapons and who are perceived as the people who can take charge in a culture or in a society. Do we see anything comparable to this in other countries? Are police organizations in other countries um, noted for perpetrating domestic violence, or are we not even talking about that yet? I, I haven't seen any reports. I didn't. I don't see Judith uh, nodding either. But impunity breeds impunity breeds impunity. And we know that police officers um, in Britain and police officers in Spain and France and Australia (laughs) and around the world, in many cases, they have impunity in how they deal with the public and they bring it home. And that's really, I think, the issue. If you had a career with a pension and medical care, and a chance of promotion, and hours that, you know, fit your schedule, and your friends all hang out together, and your families go to, you know, the gym together or whatever, would you put that at risk if you didn't believe you had impunity? Or would you put yourself at risk if you were the wife of a batter who is involved in law enforcement? Um, I've read so much about this subject. I've been uh, the victim of a batter myself. Um, I never wanted uh, somebody to put put my um, significant other in jail. I just wanted him to stop doing what he was doing. I loved him. And people don't understand that. They say, why doesn't she leave? Well, in the case of police officers, they also have additional tools um, to stalk someone. They have uh, databases and such at their disposal to find someone. So it's even more difficult for those women to leave. Um, I have, uh, Like I said, I have so much empathy for these women who are in these situations. And... In all the cases that I've read about and written about, um, which included writing about the Denver Broncos back in 2004, when half the team was up on DV charges, and I asked, they all had the same attorney, and I asked him if he was giving them a group rate. He was liking that, but... Um, but, you know, sports figures are notorious, as is the military, for the high rates of domestic violence and law enforcement, and that includes firefighters as well. Okay, well, I didn't even think about firefighters, but I, I, I can see, you know, I mean, we're talking about careers that are attractive to people who like control, who like to be in charge and who like power, and, of course, that's the crux of all domestic violence is power and control. So we've talked about this as an issue. We've talked about, you know, the the drawbacks and the handicaps and the problems for women who are experiencing uh, police officer-perpetrated domestic violence. What do we do about it? 
um, you know, are there organizations specifically for officers' wives or girlfriends? Are there uh, programs? What are we doing about it, and what can we do about it? And I'm looking at both Judith. Okay, Judith is going to volunteer for that one. Well, like I said, there are um, people in the country who uh, work on training police officers, but those are few and far between. Um, Like I said, most of the um, police departments don't have an internal policy. Um, Communication about what's going on um, is um, one of the solutions. Um, Having an advocacy program for these wives that doesn't make them feel like their husband is going to lose their job they need help. They need counseling. They need support groups. Um, so advocacy, advocacy on the part of police departments for those survivors is just critical, um, even if it means meeting with other police wives so that they can be honest with one another and talk about solutions. Um, and policy changes, um, that needs to change. It's ridiculous that there is no policy within the police department for dealing with this and getting it out of the hands of that agency into another agency, which is one solution, but it doesn't resolve. It really needs to be an objective person outside of the whole system investigating these cases. There are so many cases where there's a suicide of a police wife, and it's immediately after one, you know, I've read case upon case upon case where um, it's ruled a suicide before it's even investigated. Um, So the public needs to hear about these cases. We as journalists need to get out there and um, talk more about this. We need to write more stories about it. Um, And I've been curious, as I've been writing about these stories, why it doesn't... um, why it is not compelling to people when they read this story, and I think it's a sociological uh, response to a certain extent that we're um, beaten down and beaten down by these stories. Right now we're looking at all the police officers who are aggressive and are shooting people and excessive force, and we read so much about that. Um, You know, I'm kind of baffled at why the police... individuals don't come forward. It has an effect on the whole culture when these police officers um, are abusing their power. Uh, What about the police officer that goes to the door of a domestic violence call? Do you think that he's uh, going to be um, neutral in deciding what needs to happen in that case, even when there's a um, policy that he has to arrest somebody when he goes to answer one of those calls. It colors the whole culture. I think that's a good point. And I think one of the things we want to make sure of that we continue in this discussion is the fact that we're talking about domestic violence in general. I mean, what we're talking about is the secrecy involved and the victim blaming. So if you are the victim of police-perpetrated domestic violence, not only do you have the usual societal, you know, self-blame and self, you know, and guilt and and trying to assume responsibility for it for yourself because that's the way we were raised as women. You know, we take the responsibility, you you know, the hand that rocks the cradle and happy life, happy wife and all that kind of stuff. So in other words, it's the woman who's responsible for all of those interpersonal relationships. So if that interpersonal relationship goes awry and there's abuse on, whether we 
want to or not, we tend to think, ah, what did she do? I mean, those are the standard questions. What did she do? You know, he went berserk, but what did she do? We have all of that blaming, and it sounds to me like when we're talking about women seeking support or we're talking about reading articles about it, we're still colored by that notion of victim blaming. What did she do? Um, I, I mean, I think if I hear one more time somebody say, well, why doesn't she leave? Well, you know, I'm so sick of that. Just once, I'd like to hear somebody say, why did he do that? <laughs> why, why is he doing that? Why is he, you know, abusing her? Um, you know, instead of why is she, why is she, why is she? Why is he? You know, let's start asking that question. And, of course, it's very hard to ask the question, why is he, when we're talking about a police officer? Because, you know, officer-friendly, we all respect him and we all want to go to him. And, again, I don't want to minimize how many wonderful responsible and very kind police officers there are out there in the world. We are talking about a small minority of people who are extremely abusive. But unfortunately, when we're talking about police, we're talking about that small minority that has a hell of a power background uh, and a tremendous support system behind him and an enabling system. Um, And we tend to not realize that that victim is not only laboring under all of the stuff that every domestic violence uh, uh, victim labors under, she's also laboring under that whole culture, much as military wives are, uh, that whole brotherhood. Rita, you want to stop my monologue here and add something? Uh, I just would like to add that uh, the last time I met a group of women who um, were victimized by police officers was at the National Convention of battered women who lose custody of their children. And let's face it, there it's not just the criminal justice system that's um biased against women who make who are married to police officers and make this claim, but the civil court system as well. They are in jeopardy of losing custody of their children. Uh abusers are notorious for exploiting the courts. And I think the when I start to think about it, the domestic violence shelters have a terrible dilemma because they have excellent relationships with the police department and they have to in order to conduct their business. So the police department knows where the battered women's shelter is. So a woman who's battered by a police officer can't go there and feel safe, can't go to the family because, you know, they all know where the family lives. It's, it's The trap is huge, and the silence is vast. And while I was sitting here, I was thinking, I haven't heard of a, a single domestic violence shelter who had a special program for police wives, and nor could they ever, given their delicate political situation, depending on government funds and cooperation with the criminal justice system. In my experience, uh, a lot of bettered shelters um, for women won't even take someone who's the wife of a police officer. Now, they won't tell you that although some of them have told me that, but um, it's not something they advertise because they don't want to be portrayed as not helping the victim. 
Um, so I just wanted to note that. Um, so police wives have, they don't have a typical place where other battered women could go and they can't call the police. So what is the answer for them? Many times the answer is having a gun put in your face and getting shot. Yeah, that that's uh, suicide you were talking about. Uh, do we have any statistics and any studies? I mean, I'm a big one on the studies, you know that. Um, I haven't done enough homework on this, I don't think. I, I should have done more, and I apologize, ladies. But are there studies about police victim or victims of pol- police-perpetrated domestic violence? Um, do we know how many women there are out there, and do we know what resources they have, and do we know how many of them end up killing their abuser and ending up punished for it, for it by going to jail? Judith, Judith, are you aware of any studies? There are three studies. Um, They were self-reported surveys, um, and it went from 15%. They were done in, I think, maybe three or four police departments, um, and the statistics ran from 15% to 40%. And they were three independent studies that were done, and they all had the same results. But they... um, the FBI has looked into it. There's some statistical information, but there's never been a study done because they're not telling anybody, whether it's a survey or whatever. You know, the silence around this issue is unbelievable. Um, and I've read study after study that alludes to it, sociological studies, things like that, um, but there's no clear-cut studies except these three surveys that were done um, in the late 90s. Wow. Um, you know, wow. <laughs> I, I, wanted, I want to run out and start a study. Um, this brings us to the question, and it absolutely begs the question. Um, it's always the question for those of us who are aware of a friend or a neighbor or a relative who is experiencing domestic violence. It always is something that I want to address, which is what do we do? as a bystander, as a friend. But it occurs to me that it's a different answer if we're aware of a victim of police-perpetrated domestic violence. And I just started saying that. I don't even know if that's the real term that, that you use, Judith. But what do we do? I mean, we normally, what I tell people is carry around the hotline number with you. And, you know, each of us cannot be an expert in domestic violence, so give out the hotline number. Let this person know that there's help available to them. Listen and don't judge. I mean, we try all say all of those things to victims. But what what is different that we should say to the victim of police-perpetrated domestic violence, Judith? Uh, Diane Wettendorf, um, who has worked um, for a long time in this area, has written manuals for um, police wives or law enforcement wives or whoever is in this uh, situation telling them exactly what to do. And I believe the um, key thing that she says is be careful and you have to have a safety plan, just like other battered women. Um, And she advises them to keep asking for help, um, keep um, documenting things, have um, a safety plan where you have things ready to go in case you have to escape. Um, 
there's lots of information in Wettendorf's um, manuals. If um, you're in that situation, go online and or um, go to the library and, and find out. Don't leave yourself vulnerable. And remember that just like other battered women, when a woman is leaving is the most vulnerable time for her. Case after case after case shows that. Well, and of course, the case that we were talking about in Washington State, since Judith and I are both from Washington, we're familiar with the crystal brain thing particularly. And of course, she was trying to leave when she was killed. You know. She had actually left. Yeah, she had actually left, but, you know, I mean, it was in the early stages. I mean, she hadn't left two years ago. I mean, she was trying to leave. She was leaving at that point. Um, And that, of course, is the point of probably the greatest lethality when it comes to domestic violence. So, Rita, you have something to add here? Then we can wrap up. I, I would just add that there is a mother's underground. And how you reach the mother's underground, I'm not quite sure. But women do. And there's domestic violence shelters all over the U.S. And <laughs> go somewhere where you have no relatives or friends. And there's a website now uh, I think it's the domesticshelter.org, and you can put in the zip code. So, and it it gives you the phone number of the domestic violence shelter in that nearest to that zip code. So, if you're in Texas, think of New Hampshire. <laughs> so that's I mean, if if the studies indicate that women know when they're in jeopardy of being murdered. So, if you know, go. Thanks for that, Rita. And I would just say, of course, when you do that, you know, there are chances are really great that you're going to face repercussions from the legal system. Um, you can't do that, you know, without understanding that the law will not support you in taking your children and going away if you have children. If you don't have children, go, 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 go. Um, But just be aware of of what's going on and, of course, have the safety plan. Are there any organizations um, that um, offer special help? And I also wanted you, Judith, to spell Wittendorf's name so that people could look that up. Can you do that? Um, It's Diane, D-I-A-N-E, Wittendorf, W-E-T-E-N, D-O-R-F, as in Frank. Um, She is available online. I know some of her books are available online. Um, And as as I said, she trains police departments, and she also has manuals written on how women can survive this abuse if they're married to a law enforcement officer. Um, There have been several books written by survivors um, if you go to Amazon and just type in officer involved domestic violence, you'll find maybe 30, 40 books on the subject there that are memoirs or um, family members have written books. There is a new book out called Police Wife, and it just was published this year, 2015. And um, it has a wealth of information in it as well. Um, But like um, Rita said, said, (laughs) um, keep in touch, talk to somebody, call the hotline, talk to them, get as much information as you can, (laughs) save up a little, save up as much money as you can so that you have resources at your disposal. 
this has to be a, a terribly serious topic, and and I'm so glad that we did this. But it has it will definitely go on the books as one of the more <laughs> the rockier formats that we've done. We, as I said, we have a studio with no door. We are sharing a telephone. We don't have a mic. We just anyway, but. The important thing is that we get the information out there, and I think that on that note, we are going to wrap it up. Again, I am. Uh, we are doing the show directly from the Grouse Mountain Lodge in Whitefish, Montana, and uh, I must say I am just absolutely in awe of all of the women journalists surrounding us at this conference. It is a journalism and women symposium, JAWS, and uh, wonderful women with marvelous. We we had a session with Rita this morning on uh, Native women and trafficking and sexual assault, and wow, opened my eyes, and I've taken notes. And So I hope that in our future, uh, very near future, we're going to be able to do some shows on that. Uh, Rita, always, always, you're welcome to come to this show. You always bring a wealth of knowledge and information. Judith, I am so happy to have you here, and she's holding up her finger, so she has one more thing to say. Um, be careful when you go online, but there's also Facebook pages. Um, there's one uh, by the Br- uh, Brain family called Officer, Invest- Officer Involved Domestic Violence, um, and there's a way to hide your Facebook um, where you've been, so be cognizant of that as well. Yeah, it's all about the safety. And remember that you are not alone. You're not alone. We're out here. Join us next week. Thank you so much for joining us and putting up with our poor audio, but our wonderful guests on Three Women, Three Ways. Actually, lunch went on for a little bit longer. Okay. All right. Let's go get some food. You know what? We lost her.